Good morning. Today's scripture is 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 through 22. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. All right, thank you. Good morning. My name is Tommy, and uh, I lead the Sunday morning gathering here, Watermark, at 9 and then again at 11. And... uh, Seating is getting a little sparse in here. If you're looking for more seating, there's a little bit right here. And again, there's some at the first service. Um, So you can come to that. And and just to clear it up, people are asking, what is the yak? I I saw people leaning to, what is the yak? It's an unfortunate acrostic um, for Youth and Counseling Center, which is this gray building right over here. That's what the yak is, in case you were wondering. Um, Plus, it's funny. Call it the yak. Um, Okay. Um, we like to have a good time. That's what we like. Okay, so, uh, yeah, glad you guys are here. This is week three of a three-part series. I never do series unless they're very, very long and entitled after books of the Bible. Um, this is a, a three-week series that I am calling The Cosmic Hierarchy. And um, the other two weeks have sort of settled in the Old Testament. This week we're bringing it into the New Testament. Um, I have been through this series attempting to argue, and I've tried to show over the last three weeks, that, um, that one of the most important messages of the Bible is that God is king, and that there is no other king. And there is no one else that, that, uh, that Christians should be following as king. There is no one else whom we should be committing to follow, that we should pledge allegiance to. Um, this is the message of the Old Testament. Um, and there are many people that if you ask them, what is the message of the Bible? What is the Bible about? Uh, maybe you've never read it and you have a question. What is the Bible about? There are lots of people who will, who will just say a blanket statement like, um, well, the Bible's about how to go to heaven and not go to hell when you die. That's what the Bible's about. Um, there is not a single follower of God in the Old Testament or in the New Testament that would answer that question that way. Um, the question of the Bible, the, 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 the reason the Bible is written, the message behind it, is to tell us who is king of the whole thing, of the whole world. That is the message of the Bible. It is an ancient book um, that is centered upon the message of Yahweh, God, is king. Um, We were created in the image of God. 
with an office and a vocation as vassal kings and delegate rulers of the world to be the images of God in this place. Um, that is what the Bible is about. And there are several questions the Bible that the Old Testament is answering because when the Old Testament was being written, um, there were certain circumstances that forced these actual books to be written. There's always a reason to write a book. No one is just standing there and they think, you know what? I think I'm going to write a very long story today. Um, there is a reason. There is a message. There is a questions that need to be answered. Um, there are questions that maybe you are asking. That is why you write. Um, that is why you, you, you put thoughts on paper and, and, and pass them around. Um, and so there are several questions in the Old Testament that are attempting to be answered, especially in what's called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes in the scriptures are called the book of, books of Moses. Um, and in those particular books, there are specific questions that are being answered. There is a group of people called the Israelites um, who find themselves in exile. They had at one point land and they had a temple where their God lived with them. And dwelled with them. There was a place on the earth where Yahweh and, and, and humankind could dwell in the same room. Certain types of human beings. We're not getting into that today. But um, there was a space in the world, in their town, where this could happen. There was a palace where they had a king. Um, and at some point, they find themselves with none of these things. No land, no inheritance, no temple, no king. They've lost it all. Their Eden is gone. They have been exiled from their Eden. And the question of the Old Testament is, how did this happen? So the questions, there are really two that I want to talk about this morning. The first question of the Old Testament is, that, that caused it to be written is, how did we get here? How did we lose everything that we had? Um, and how did we end up here? And so they're going to sit around the campfire and they're going to tell these stories and they're going to say, there's this garden where human beings could dwell with God and they were meant to be there and they had a vocation and an office and work to do. But something happened and there was an attempt to usurp the throne. There was this temptation by the serpent that said, you can be like God. Um, you can be able to judge right from wrong, which is something the kings have always done. It's a gift from God. It's whenever you see a king in the Old Testament um, and, and they're about to judge right from wrong, the spirit of God will come upon them, it will say, and they will judge right from wrong. And there are times when this is taken. And there's this time where David um, rapes a woman and then murders her husband. Um, and he's confronted by, uh, he's a king, and he's confronted by the prophet um, Nathan. And he, when it's all exposed, he cries out to God. He says, take, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Allow me to remain king and judge these people. Because it's a gift. It's something that God does. So how did we get here? How did we lose all of that? And how did we get here? And the second question they're attempting to answer is, how do we keep from ending up here again? How do we keep this from happening again? Because now they have children being born in exile in Babylon. They no longer have children being born who can see the temple of God and can see the, um, their, their religion being practiced, the sacrifices and the priests and the, the, the scent of covering the town of, of the sacrifices and the celebrations of the festivals. And they can't see any of it. And so their children have no way of knowing what this was all like. Up until this point, they have not needed to write down anything. It's all been oral tradition, and Jewish oral tradition was amazing. They've not needed to write it down, but now they find themselves in exile, and there's a reason to write these things down, and so they begin to write. And the questions that they're writing to answer is, how did we get here? 
How do we keep this from happening again? Our children need to know how this thing got to this place. So, um, you're going to read stories in, in the beginning of scriptures in the Pentateuch, Hebrews 1 through 11. And if you read it in the Hebrew, it kind of rhymes. It's kind of poetic. Um, this is like the oral tradition part, and there's stories of like the Tower of Babel. We already talked about Genesis. Uh, we already talked about Adam and Eve. Stories last week like the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a ladder and a tower up to heaven and usurp the throne of God over and over and over. The message is, who is God? And the message of the Old Testament is, we have followed the wrong kings and we've ended up in the wrong places because we have followed the wrong kings. And so we need to find the right king, God, and follow this king again. This is the cosmic hierarchy. So, fast forward a little ways. You have a lot of stories um, that are part of Israel's past that all point to this. There's a particular guy named Samuel. Um, Samuel's a prophet. And here, let's, I'll, I'll help illustrate. Here you go. Here you go. Okay. Samuel, this stick figure over here on the left, is, uh, is the prophet of Israel uh, in his day. There's this other guy named, named Eli, and he's, he's the priest, okay? The prophet and the priest work together under the king. The prophet's job is very simple. Deliver the message of, from, from the king, from God, to the people. Um, the priest's job is very simple. Um, restore uh, whatever brokenness there is between the relationship of God and man Restore that through the sacrifices and doing the temple work. And they all three worked together. The prophet and the priest and the king worked together to keep Israel in line. They had no human kings. They were led directly by God. Um, and God had laid out principles for how they are to dwell with God. Okay? Now, there comes a time where, like the stories of Genesis and Exodus, where the people get some ideas that things would be a lot easier if they didn't have to be ruled by something they couldn't see. And you know what they say? We want a king. And so here's how it goes. Uh, in 1 Samuel 8, um, starting in verse 4, it says, All of the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Uh-oh. The board is coming together and they would like to talk to the president. Now, gathered together and come to Samuel. They said to him, you are old. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> Time to move to Newport Ritchie. Just move. <laughs> You're old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, they look around at the world. They have a king who is God. Um, and they are following this king. However, they look around and you know what they see? Um, kingdoms of the world. And every kingdom has its own king. A human king who wears this big old fancy crown, sits on a big old chair, has swords and scepters and armies. Um, very much uh, like a... Uh, an A-type personality, very powerful, speaks loudly. Um, <clears throat> not only that, these kings have propagandists who travel throughout the world talking about the amazing things that their kings have done and how divine they are and the miracles that they've done and how when the, when the army goes into battle, they're right out there in the front on a chariot leading their people into battle. And the Israelites <clears throat> have no stories to compare with these earthly kings because their king is God. And they don't like this. And they want to comp compete with everyone else. You know, what that, you, know, you know what they want to do? They want to make a name for themselves. Just like Babel. Just like the Tower of Babel. That's what they want. Um, <clears throat> and so, they come to Samuel and they say, we want, we want our own king. We want a human king. We don't want this thing anymore, this prophet thing. <clears throat> if you fast forward to verse 7 through 9. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. He's like, this is not about you. They're not upset because you're old. Don't take that personally. <laughs> or the Newport Ritchie jokes. I lived there too for a while, okay? I understand. Um, 
He says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. I'm their king and they're rejecting their king. Um, They have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. He says, they want human kings. They want somebody they can hold up and say, here's our person. This is our guy, look at him. He's got strong ears and this is our person. Um, and, we, and we back this person, all right? And we proclaim his name. Um, he says, warn the people what human kings are like. Maybe read the book of Exodus to them, right? Maybe tell them about Pharaoh and how God rescued them because they were called to either serve Pharaoh as slaves or serve Yahweh as worshipers. And there's a way that they are called to live. And this is the option you're given, earthly kings or God himself. And so Samuel goes to them and he says, I would like to tell you about these earthly kings. He says, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. He says, this is what human kings are like. This is what earthly kings are like. This is what earthly nations are like. When we embed ourselves in earthly nations and we decide to follow their kings, this is what you are, this is what you are committing to. He says, you have been called to live another way and follow another king in the midst of these kingdoms. This is the consequences. And so, human kings will never function as God does, is the argument. Remember the God who brought you out of Egypt, how different he is from, from, from Pharaoh. Um, they will never lead you, um, earthly kings will never lead you towards, towards rest and peace, only war and oppression. They will tax you and they will de- make demands from you that you cannot live up to. They will eventually oppress you. No matter how much they swear that they will take care of you, this is what they will do. Um, because humans weren't designed for this. That is not their vocation. They were, human beings were not designed, according to the writers of scripture, they were not designed to hold these positions of ruling as kings over human beings. They were created to follow God as king. Um, this is the message of the Old Testament. This is why there are so many stories. And when we find... Um, when we find these stories, um, what we see throughout, and we've talked about this a lot in the last year, um, whenever the human, human beings have a king, even when God gives them a king, what happens over and over and over is that they chase idols, they do the wrong thing, and they lead the people into exile every single time, exile after exile after exile, after oppression after oppression of their enemies, because human kings will always fail you. And then they repent, and God brings them back and sets them back up and says, let's try this again. Have another king. Now, this is the story of how this whole thing started, of how we ended up with the human kings. God hears their requests, and he says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. And they say, yes, we do. We're okay with the terms with what you've laid out for us. We want a human king. And so it's fascinating because God accommodates their request um, and decides to change the hierarchy. And here's what he does. He adds another sort of step in the totem pole here. Um, God is on top, still, um, still the ruler of all his people. And then he gives them a human king above God's people. And so now the king will rule God's people 
under God, over God's people, who are called to bless the nations of the world. Okay? So there's one more thing added in. He recognizes, okay, you guys, you want somebody to follow. You want to see them. You want to be able to look into their eyes and, and, and study their life and see what they're like. And you want to follow them. I will accommodate this because I want you to learn some things. Okay? So he accommodates it. Um, now, we move forward through the story. When we get past the Pentateuch, when we get into these sort of these stories of these kings and stuff, what we find is, like I said, the kings are constantly going astray. But it's not only that creation itself seems to be unraveling. The world has broken into kingdoms, all kinds of kingdoms. And these kings are ruling over people as if they are actually the kings of anything. And they are, they are fighting and warring over land as if they are the ones who own any land, as if it's not God's. Um, and uh, things are falling apart. There is oppression, there is injustice, and the prophets are speaking up and saying, this is how the world is. This is not how God's people should be. Um, and there's this constant reminder of, of this is what you signed up for and this is what happens when you follow their king. So um, if we go back to the beginning of the Pentateuch, I'm going to do a little review for those of you who weren't here last week. Um, Genesis starts off with these six days of creation followed by a day of rest. And in these six days of creation, there is this progression that you see. Starts off with just light and then sky and firmament, dry ground, plants, animals. And it moves forward up until it gets to day six where human beings are placed in a position um, that is different from the rest of creation, created in the image of God as sort of vassal kings, delegated kings with the delegated authority of God to rule over and have dominion over creation and move it forward. As long as human beings stay in this position and, and live up to their vocation and recognize their God as king, things will progress and move forward as the story goes. However, Deuteronomy 4, you get to a place where Moses stands up and gives a proclamation and says, you have followed after other idols. When you follow other idols, and then he begins to list um, creation, sort of deconstructing uh, humans, land, animals, and, and he has the six days of creation moving in reverse. In other words, what he's basically saying is, here's what he's saying. It's a very Jewish way of saying, creation will flourish when human beings are living the way that they should. Creation will begin to deteriorate when human beings liken themselves to everything else and lower themselves and are fallen. This will cause things to move forward. This is how things move forward. This is how things move backwards. Um, This is the worldview of the ancient Jewish people, the ancient Israelites. This is why they viewed, I mean, this is how, I mean, growing up, I was always taught, you know, where did hurricanes and tornadoes come from? Well, it's, some, it's from sin. That, and that never made a lot of sense to me. But in the ancient Jewish mindset, this actually makes sense. How could eating an apple cause a hurricane? No. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's human beings attempting to usurp the throne of God um, and rule themselves that causes, in the mind of the writers of Scripture, creation to deconstruct and move backwards. Now, you would think... That what God needs to do now, when you get to the New Testament, what God needs to do is he needs to make, make creation whole again. And this is, this is the prayer you see, see all through books like the Psalms, that, um, that the rocks are going to cry out for God to make things whole again. The, the, the dream that we have is that, that God would come and restore everything and just make it whole again. However, the problem is there's no point in making creation whole again if human beings aren't going to take, take their post and follow God again. There is no point. And the way to set creation whole again is actually for human beings to to live the way they were intended to live to follow god as their king and to live up to their vocation you can't have a sermon without without uh, saying some nt right so here you go 
Um, if you're playing Tommy Sermon Bingo, mark it. Um, creation cannot be put right until human beings are are until humans are put right. That is why the create. That is why the creation is waiting on tiptoe for the apocalypse of God's children. Apocalypse is a big scary word. It means unveiling. It's a Jewish way of saying unveiling, right? Um, the it. The creation is waiting for human beings to step up again and to be remade and to be restored and made whole again. That is what creation is waiting for. Um, where does he get this idea? Well, from places like Romans chapter 8. For, uh, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope um, that the resurrection itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So, um, the dream and the hope is that a, there, there is a freedom that will come to the whole of the cosmos, the whole of creation, when human beings are glorified. And when I say glorified, I mean reigning with God. This is the message of the New Testament. Um, this, is, this is the hope of it all. That we want to set everything right. Everything, if everything is going to be made whole again then God is going to do something with human beings to restore them. God needs to patch this thing up because they were put here in this position to guide this thing forward and without a guide, it will deconstruct. It will move backwards, it will decay. Um, so this is the hope of creation, that God will interact with human beings. I know there is a lot of theology out there and I was raised in it uh, being taught that um, God's whole intention is just to sort of restore his relationship with human beings and then fly away while the rest of the world just sort of burns and perishes. That is not what any Christian in the first century believed. They did not believe this. Um, they believed the order of things would be made whole again. Um, they believed that the cosmos would be reset and remade and put to rights again. But it has everything to do with the, the, the reconciliation between God and human beings, with human beings stepping into the vocation that they were called to live in and living in that way. That is how... Um, the, the writers of the New Testament saw this thing and told the story. Um, and when we talk here about uh, the glory of the children of God, it's an interesting thing to say because oftentimes you don't think about um, the glorifying of humans. The, what, is, what does that mean? Because um, when I think of, of giving glory, I think of giving glory to God, to Jesus. That is the only one worth giving glory to. Well, um, glorifying, giving glory to basically means lifting something into its proper place. That's what that means. So if you're going to spend some time giving glory to God, what you're basically saying is, um, Jesus is king, and I'm putting Jesus as king over my life. Um, and it, it's sort of a time where you pause and reflect over the areas of your life that you have not made Jesus the king of. That is what it means to glorify God, to ask, what is God's role in my life? What is my role uh, under God and in this world? Um, and spending time sort of restoring this thing. That is what it means to glorify God. Human beings, there's a lot of passages in Scripture in the New Testament, especially uh, in the writings of Paul, that talks about human beings being glorified. And what he's saying is being lifted from their position down here and put in the place that they are supposed to be in. And when human beings are glorified and put back where they, where they were created to be, living out their vocation, um, all of creation will begin to be made whole again. That is, um, that is the, 
the, the proclamation of the early Christians. Um, a lot of it, they believe that this would happen and is happening. A lot of it comes from um, passages like Genesis chapter 9. There is, after the flood is over, after the waters recede, um, after the animals come out in the order that, that they were sort of created in in the beginning of Genesis, there's, so this is sort of a recreation moment, and then God speaks to, to Noah and he says, be fruitful and multiply, the same thing he said to Adam. Um, there's this, there's this sort of monologue that God gives, and he speaks to creation. He says, I now establish my covenant with you. He's talking to, uh, to Noah and his sons, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you. So God makes a covenant not only with people, but with animals, with creation. God's making a covenant with animals. Um, yes, he intends to set everything right again. That is the intention. Um, we, uh, I'm sorry, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, uh, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. The flood was the representation of the the undoing of creation. The earth started covered by chaotic chaotic water, and it was was ordered out of that, and the flood is the closing back in. It's it's wiped, we've, we've gone back to zero, and God says... Here's my covenant to you. Not just to you, but to all of creation. I'm going to ensure this never happens again. I'm going to ensure that this hierarchy cannot be tampered with. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the right king in place. I'm gonna redeem my people. I'm gonna set them right again so that creation can flourish. Because if creation, because if human beings are living out their vocation, are following God the way they are called to, they will flourish, creation will flourish, their relationships will flourish. And the world can find peace and joy that it was meant to find, that it was meant to dwell in. Um, Isaiah writes about this time when human beings will be restored. He says, when this happens, he says, the desert and the parched lands will be glad and the wilderness will rejoice and, blo- and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Lots of passages in the scripture talk about creation um, yearns for the day when human beings will realize who they are and what they are doing here. That all of creation actually has hope that this is going to happen. Um, Because God has said, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to set this right. God is not planning on abandoning any of this and shutting this whole thing down and letting all burn while we sort of like Platonists fly away somewhere else. God's center of God's story is here. Um, And you are called to take part in the restoration of it. Now... um, so the Old Testament story, the questions behind the writing of the Old Testament is, is, is how did we get here and how do we keep from ending up here again? The answer to the questions are very simple. How did we get here? We followed the wrong kings. How do we keep from ending up here again? Follow the right king and reject other kings. Stop getting wrapped up in these earthly kingdoms in the ways that we were never meant to. Um, realize who is actually in charge of this whole thing and live in that way. Um, so if that is the message of the Old Testament, what is the message of the New Testament? That's a whole different thing. The, the New Testament um, believers, the Jewish Christians, they, they believed that the world had already been set to rights in, in very small ways, that these seeds were planted and that they were growing. Um, and they believed that it, happened, it had happened through Jesus. The, the, the main question behind the New Testament is, how have things now been made right again? How did, how did they get made right? And, and that's what the writings of the New Testament uh, from Matthew to Revelation are all about. 
how God has made things right and how God is continuing to make things right and how in the end things will be fully um, restored and reconciled, all things to God. Um, <clears throat> so the early Christians, their, their belief that all things um, had been made right again, it stems from one very simple fact that one man had been resurrected. They believed that one single man um, had already been glorified and had lived out perfectly the Imago Dei, the image of God, that human beings were created to live, the way it created to live. Um, and they tell these stories about how there was a time when there was, a, there was a massive storm raging, threatening to kill them, and Jesus stood up and spoke to nature, and, and it recognized the authority of the image of God, and it obeyed. And they tell these stories about how when, when this Jesus of Nazareth would go and find people who were lame, um, he would just touch them and they would be made holy. They'd be able to walk. He would find people who were blind and touch them and they'd be able to see again. That somehow, it, somehow, when Jesus moved through the world, everywhere he went, there was this reversal of the decay of creation. That things that were created to move one way but had stopped and had moved the other way, that when Jesus entered into the story, that when he entered into the, to the, to the domain of these people, this brokenness, that it would, to, it would stop and it would begin to move the right way again. And that everything Jesus did would somehow like, bring this restoration. And it wasn't just like these physical things of nature, like disease and, and storms. It was also somehow relationships because there was Roman centurions and there was Jewish elders and they hated each other. But when Jesus was present, he was able to, to restore them and bring them back together. People who hated each other for racial reasons, people who, um, who, whose very existence was a threat to them, that somehow Jesus was able to make these people whole again. Um, he would go to these people who were, who were considered impure, not able to worship with the Jewish people. And he would, they would, they would say, I'm I'm sick and lame, I can't walk. And he said, I, I declare you clean and you're healed. And he would reconcile the clean with the unclean. And that everywhere Jesus went, there was this reversal of the whole thing. Um, and, that, and that eventually, the Jewish leaders, because this was such a threat to the established religion of the day, the, the, the religious leaders actually rose up and killed this man, but not even death could hold him down. There was even a reversal of that. Because when human beings are living the way that they should, creation moves forward. And decay and death are conquered and pushed back against. And this is what the original Christians were writing about and talking about. And they went a lot farther than that. They actually, at some point, started recognizing that this isn't just any human being. This is somehow the presence of God in a human being. This is, this is different. And you know how they began to talk about him? Like Paul writes about him. You can read some of his passages in 1 Corinthians where he says, he calls Jesus the last Adam and a life-giving spirit. Like there was an Adam at the beginning who was created one way and he fell. And then Jesus is the last Adam. Like the one living the way that we were supposed to live. The, the restored, fully, fully um, perfected human being. Um, in verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Um, verse 49, and just as, we, um, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Somehow Jesus was actually going to remake all of this. And they began to recognize that, oh, when we, when we desired a human king 
And God said, okay, I'm going to give you a human king. We didn't realize the fullness of this whole thing. I mean, we all want human kings. We all want to follow somebody. We spend our lives listening to podcasts, social media, reading magazines and books about people that we want to be like, and we fall in love with them. I'm like, this is my favorite, whatever, author, writer, thinker, philosopher, theologian, whatever. And we, and we try to absorb everything that they're teaching because we want to become like them because we look at other human beings and we say, I want to be like this person. And in other words, we are disciples of human beings. We want to become just like them. And God recognizes this. When we cry out and we say, we want a human king. I want something I can see. I want to look in their eyes and see how they live their life and emulate it. God says, okay, I get that. Here's what we're going to do. And God actually edits one last time the cosmic hierarchy and melds. He says, you want, you want a human to follow? I'll become one. You, want, you still want to follow God? And you want to know somehow what God is like? Look at Jesus. He says, you want to follow a human king? Jesus is your king. You want to know what God is like? Jesus is the image of God. You want to know how your life should be ordered? Jesus is the perfect example. You want to know who you should follow? Jesus is your shepherd. Um, who can you trust? Who, who is the one who is going to reconcile you with God? Well, Jesus is going to be the entire thing, the, the headship of what Israel had. Jesus is going to be your prophet. He's going to be your priest. He's going to be your king. He's just going to be the whole thing all in one. And here you go. This is, this is how the Christians claimed the world can be made right again. And I believe it. Um, Jesus, divine and human, resurrected to glory, both perfect presence and the image of God all rolled up into one. And then who are we then? We are God's people, restored through Jesus, glorified to vocation and co-laboring with God to bring peace and flourishing in this world. We are still following, but we are already citizens of the kingdom of God, which is not yet fully revealed. Um, God has, has made it clear through Jesus that each and every one of us, that for us, the kingdom is at hand. There is nothing else that you need to live out your vacation than you already have. A homeless person without two pennies to rub together can wake up this very morning and live out the human vocation that he was created to do by taking care of those around him, by loving them and working for the restoration of others. Every one of you has exactly what you need to live out the vocation. Um, There is no need like the Tower of Babel to make a name for yourself. It is unnecessary. You think somehow it will help things. It will not. In fact, it actually could hurt things. It could get in the way of you even seeing who God actually is. You don't need riches. You don't need fame. You don't need a bigger house. You don't, you don't need to be a, a, an, an ascetic and, and get rid of it all either. Like you right now as you are, are called to repent and follow God. Everything you have, everything you need, you already have. In fact, Anything that you don't have, I would argue you don't need to live out the vocation that God has for you. We are citizens of the kingdom of God right now. And we are here with a vocation to do, a job to do, a vocation to live out, an office to hold, to take care of creation. And every single day, um, creation is all things God has created. Human beings, animals, the planet itself. We can look around and see Things are decaying and deteriorating because of our own actions. You know why? Because we have the wrong kings. Uh, For a lot of us, our king is money, and we would rather have a lot of money than to live out the vocation um, as in nurturing of creation that God has called us to. Okay? Like, 
There is a way that we are called to live. Jesus is Lord, nothing else is. Not Caesar, not the president, not the prime minister, um, not money, not your job, not your career, not this thing that you have built up that everyone sees. Jesus and Jesus alone. When we follow the wrong kings, we threaten the whole thing. We threaten our relationships with people. We threaten our relationship with the world and with God. And so what about creation? Creation, all of creation is Jesus' kingdom. Um, The early Christians wrote constantly about how they recognized that Jesus was present at creation somehow. They don't go into detail explaining how all of of this works, all right? Like, Jesus was present at creation. Like, it is through the power of Christ that this whole thing happens. Um, Jesus' kingdom is, creation is Jesus' kingdom. It is beloved. It is waiting for the fullness of God's restoration to be revealed. Creation can be made whole again and will be made whole again through the, the covenant that God made. To restore mankind. And so what does this mean for all of us though? Well, when we read the scriptures, this is sort of the hermeneutic. It's a big fancy word that means it's the lens through which we should read the scriptures. That we should, this is how I read the scriptures. Um, uh, this is how I understand what we are doing here. Um, and when we read the scriptures, we should, we should look at, at sort of the parallel str- uh, struggles and structures that they have with what we're living in. And grab what we can to understand, like, here's how they worked through this. Here's how we should work through this as well. Um, when we are looking for someone to follow, when we realize that we are following human beings, it is okay as long as they are following Jesus. To the extent that human leadership no longer looks like Christ, we veer off and go towards Christ again. Even Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. In the areas where Paul no longer looks like Christ, the Christians should not follow. Um, we have neglected the vocation of Adam and Eve in our lives. We are, we are living for things um, that we desire, um, whether or not they are part of God's vocation. If we tend to make decisions on, does this benefit us? The, 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 the question that we should have when we go, even when we buy cars, when we buy clothes, when we do business, when we do anything... How does this line up with the vocation that I have been called to and created to? Does this align with my vocation? Sin is not a simple moral failure. Sin is a failure of vocation. Sin is a failure of of human beings to live in the way they were called to live, to hold the office and the vocation that they were created to. And lastly, I would argue that in many, time, many places and many times we have usurped the throne of God thinking that we can lead ourselves and find our own way to peace and shalom through earthly might. Um, Jesus was a different kind of king. Jesus in the early Christians was regularly held up as like a dichotomy to everything else you saw. When the world was proclaiming Caesar is Lord, the Christians would laugh and say, no way, Jesus is Lord. And Caesar would bring peace to the world, it was argued, by military might and the Christians would say, well, Jesus is bringing peace to the world through the cross. And Caesar was a mighty leader who would command people. And Jesus was a humble leader who would wash the feet of the people around him and who cared for the lowest of the low and invited the highest down to take part in their healing. And Jesus said, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Let God lift you up. Let that be how it works. And they said, every single time the, the, the kingdoms of the world rose up, especially the Roman Empire under Caesar, and they said, Caesar is the one who sits on the throne and who will bring salvation. The Christians would, would scoff and they would commit treason and they would say, 
Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. This is why they were killed. This is why they were rounded up and killed and slaughtered by the hundreds and by the thousands because they refused to recognize other kings. They recognized that Christians were those who followed Jesus and believed in the resurrection of Jesus and believed that Jesus was king and they were in every kingdom in the world at this time um, and they believed that they were a separate kingdom sort of in these kingdoms. Uh, Paul calls them um, resident aliens is what he calls them. There is one Lord, it is Jesus. And so as we get back into Matthew next week, I'm going to wrap this up here. As we get back into Matthew next week, um, we're going to look in depth about how Jesus became king in the eyes of these early Christians. Um, and we're going to see what it means for us. And hopefully by the time we wrap this whole thing up, you will have a whole, um, a, a more full understanding of, um, of how the Bible should be read. That is my goal. So uh, our communion servers, why don't we go ahead and take communion? You can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, I want to invite every single one of you to take communion with us. It is very simple. It's a liturgical thing that Christians have done for thousands of years now. Um, We gather, we take some bread. It is broken, symbolizing the body of Christ broken for you. We take some wine and we pour it out into the glass and we dip the bread into the wine, symbolizing the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, And we proclaim that this is how salvation enters into the world. Not through the ways of other kings, not through military might, not through strength and displays of power, but through displays of brokenness. Um, By pouring ourselves out for others around us and letting God prove to those around us um, that this is not the end. That after there is pouring out, there is also resurrection. Because this is how things progress and move forward. Um, So our communion servers are going to come and spread around the room. And uh, why don't we take some time in prayer? And, uh, and contemplate all these things. Think of ways that God is, has not, that Jesus is not king of different areas of your life. Ponder what it would look like if he was, and different decisions that you would make. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That we get to come here and claim your name and tell your story. Help it to hit us harder every single time we get together. Renew us, make us whole. I lift up each of the house churches gathering throughout this week. I ask that you would encourage them all, that you would bind them together in, uh, in unity, um, that they would see a bigger picture than what is being offered. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.